I'm Dr. Jillian Horton, host of MedLife with Dr. Horton on CMAJ Podcasts. I'm a general internist, an associate chair of the Department of Internal Medicine, and director of the Alan Kloss Health Humanities Program at the Max Rady College of Medicine in Winnipeg, Manitoba. My conversation today is with Dr. Ron Epstein. Dr. Epstein is a family physician, palliative care physician, author, musician, and researcher. He is an internationally recognized expert on the subject of mindfulness and medicine, and I'm also lucky to be able to call him a mentor and friend. Today we'll be answering listener questions about physician health and wellness. We'll be tackling everything from burnout to resilience to stress to dealing effectively with cultures when they're toxic. Ron is joining me from a studio in Rochester, New York. Hi, Ron. So, Ron, we have tough questions today, and we're going to just jump right into them. Here's our first question, as it was sent in to us by one of our podcast listeners. So they write, for those of us working in an underserviced, under-resourced setting, especially in primary care, how do we reconcile the quality of care we wish we could provide with the quality that we feel we're limited to provide? Yeah, you, you're right. You didn't start with an easy question. I can certainly relate to that. <laughs> um, I've been in primary care for 35 years. I can't say that it's ever been easy. Uh, there have always been limitations on care. Uh, at first, it was limitations of, of the limits of technology. We just didn't have as many options available. Then it was, uh, in the U.S., managed care, and then insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, the government. Uh, and in Canada, I imagine you have your own mix of uh, administrative limitations to the care that you can provide. The other limitation that I see here, which may or may not be the same in Canada, is is a communication problem. Uh, I used to know all of the specialists to whom I would refer, and now that's much, much more difficult because everyone's more isolated in their own offices and uh, don't have as much interaction. The formula of high responsibility and low control is really a, um, uh, a formula for learned helplessness. You just feel that you don't have a sense that you can do much about it. The first thing that I would say to that is uh, developing a sense of community, because alone we can't do a lot, but as a community we can do a bit more. And by that I mean uh, having honest, deep discussions with colleagues about what are the sources of these difficulties, what's changeable, what isn't changeable, and also a sense of collective solidarity. So that's the place that I would start. Uh, I don't see... Uh, in healthcare systems anywhere in the world that I've been uh, an ideal. I don't think anyone has it completely right, but the places that I've seen that have been moving in the right direction start with a sense of, of community and shared vision. You know, we sometimes have this sense that things right now are the most difficult they've ever been. And sometimes I wonder if that arises from our separation in medical education and just generally the practice of medicine from our understanding of our shared history. You know, we forget what things have been like for a whole generation of physicians before us. We don't have to look that far back to see a time before immunization and a time before appropriate modalities for a huge number of diseases that are treatable now. I wonder if you see any remedy in, in learning more about our history. Uh, for me, that's been useful. Uh, I've even gone back to Plato, and in one of his dialogues, 
there's a long tract about what's wrong with medicine today. Again, this was 2,500 years ago. And contrast doctors who really take the time and understand their patients deeply and other doctors who uh, write prescriptions without really hearing patients' stories and treating people in a mechanical way. Uh, interestingly, uh, in that same dialogue, they talk about the doctors of the previous generation who somehow had it better. Uh, so I guess you could say that things have been getting worse since the ancient Greeks. Uh, but uh, I think I think it does provide some sense of perspective. It, it, medicine always is difficult. And I think that's that's part of the, the challenge that we all have. So our next listener picks up on some of those same themes. And here's uh, the question that they sent in to us, Ron. So what are some good strategies to avoid internalizing stressors? And this person writes, uh, common stressors that I often find myself internalizing relating to medicine or criticisms of the profession, my salary, the quality of our work, of our system, etc. And those are all comments that are made by the general population, the media, and sometimes even friends and families. How can I avoid taking a defensive stance and approach when those comments are made? I think we're all, we all want to be proud of the work that we do. And medicine is barely a science. It's really, um, it's a very, it's an imperfect art. I mean, yes, we have huge amounts of scientific understanding, but the kind of judgment that goes into effective patient care is really hard to quantify and it's hard to learn in a very organized way. Often we have to be thrown into the chaos of day-to-day -day work in order to build this sense of perceived and actually real competence uh, with what, what we do. Because of it, I think it, it makes us an easy target, partially because the media and the public and I would say the profession itself sets up a standard of perfection that really is unachievable. And, and we know that doctors are incredibly conscientious. And if you do personality tests on doctors, they tend to, we tend to score very high on compulsiveness and, uh, and, and conscientiousness, both of which are really good qualities. But I think it's important to take a perspective that there are things we can control and things we can't. And frankly, what I do when, when people start on those kinds of criticisms, as I say, you're exactly right. Medicine is difficult. It's highly imperfect. The system doesn't work all that well. And tell me about situations when you had, when you felt that a doctor was actually able to uh, do better than that, or it's going to step outside of it, or go beyond the call of duty, or not a doctor, maybe a nurse, or someone else that you encountered in a healthcare setting. So rather than framing it as, I mean, all of this is true, and but I think that you can take a different view of that conversation and say, well, what's working? You know, what is it that we can build on that uh, might make uh, might make a difference. Uh, and, and I think most people can point to something in a, in a healthcare experience that had those qualities. And Ron, you use appreciative inquiry uh, quite extensively in your own work with physicians and your own workshops. And just to pick up on that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how individual physicians uh, can use appreciative inquiry in conversation to try to get a better sense of their own strengths and what's working well for them. How, how does that unfold? How can they set that up? So uh, appreciative inquiry is a technology that was developed in a business school, actually, to 
foster institutional change. And in our work with physicians, and I say we because Nick Krasner and I developed a whole series of programs to help physicians feel a better sense of capacity and develop uh, develop resilience. The, the whole idea behind appreciative inquiry is that there are two modes of dealing with change, either institutionally or personally. One is by identifying problems and trying to solve them. Another is identifying things that are going well and trying to enhance them. And it's not that one is better than the other, but in medicine, we are very problem-oriented. We're very pathology-oriented. We look for things that are wrong. We look for things that are broken. We look for things that are not going well. But all of us in medicine have positive qualities and characteristics. And even in systems that are troubled, uh, there are some things that are going well. And we know that it's easier to build on success than to try to repair failure. And, and so that's the whole idea behind appreciative inquiry is asking questions like, I know you had a terrible experience with, you know, this patient or this situation, but can you identify something in there that, that was able to mitigate that situation to some degree, something positive that someone did that you did that was able to make even a small difference? Uh, and this is not being Pollyannish. It's really helping us learn about ourselves not only our shortcomings, but also the strengths that we can bring to difficult situations. Uh, when I'm giving talks to, to large groups of doctors, I say, well, you all are resilient. I mean, everyone survived organic chemistry, right? And so there, there is this capacity for resilience and dealing with um, vast quantities of information and emotional stress. The question is, how can we channel that energy better? What can we do in, in a highly imperfect world, in a highly imperfect situation? So in some ways, this is a, a strategy that we can use to overcome our, our negativity bias. There's interesting research on um, it's kind of happiness research, if you will. It's positive psychology. And I don't know if this is completely true, but uh, we are, um, as humans, programmed to remember negative experiences more vividly than positive ones. And if you think about it, that's a survival skill. I mean, you eat a mushroom, you get sick, uh, and you want to really remember what that mushroom looked like so that it doesn't happen again. And we know in marriages, for example, if you just record couples talking with one another, if the positive statements that they say to each other don't outnumber the negative statements by, I think they said a three to one ratio, then that's highly predictive of divorce. Uh, so, in a way, we remember positive and negative things about each other as well. And we remember positive and negative things about ourselves. So, we all have things, mistakes that we've made that continue to haunt us, whereas we often forget the successes that we've had. And so, appreciative inquiry is, is an antidote to that. It's a way of rebalancing and saying, okay, yes, all these negative things have happened, but Let's talk about positive potential and how you can grow that further. You know, that's actually a perfect segue into our next question, which is bleak. So one of our listeners writes in, given that the healthcare system is failing and the toxic culture present in much of management and many specialties, that burnout seems an appropriate response to a collapsing profession, why should we have hope for the future? 
I guess my first response to that is that I'm I'm too young to be a pessimist. <laughs> and I also think, I mean, everything that he's saying is true. There is a toxic culture. Things are falling apart in many ways. But again, I would kind of give the same answer is, is when you look inside yourself, when you look and, and, and try to discern what it is that gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in your work, and then look at what you do in your day-to-day work, there will be things that are concordant with that sense of purpose and meaning and things that are discordant with it. And part of this is self-awareness. Part of it's saying, okay, I can hold both the positive and the negative at the same time. Medicine is toxic. It's in trouble. It's also glorious, inspiring, and and redemptive uh, in another way. It's not that either of those is true or false, but the ability to hold that, that contradictory view, that, that paradoxical view of medicine, I think for me and for a lot of the colleagues that I have is, is, is the reason that, that they're able to continue to maintain some sense of purpose and sanity and, uh, and direction in their work. You know, Ron, what that really makes me think of, and we're going to talk about this a bit more later, um, are really the approaches that we often talk about using when we address physician burnout. And the two sort of categories of approaches, the physician-directed approaches and the organization-directed approaches, you know, the some of the literature, and maybe you could talk about this, behind using physician-directed approaches really comes back to that idea of having a locus of control as well as all the direct effects of those interventions. It makes me think of something that I have said to students on occasion, which is the idea that, yes, the system may be broken, whatever that means, but I'm not. You know, so just coming back to that locus of control for this individual. So you bring up a, a few really key points here. One, one is that uh, collectively, by drawing attention to our collective distress, systems can change. And there are initiatives at our hospitals and medical schools here um, and also places around the world where where systems have really come to realize that uh, humans are their most important resource and physicians and nurses and other health professionals need to be supported in, in the work that they do. So whether that uh, amounts to creating opportunities for community, whether it amounts to more flexible work hours, whether it amounts to uh, recognition of often those unpaid uh, actions that improve patient outcomes for which they're often unpaid, unrecognized, and some some kind of recognition. Uh, Availability of uh, resources when people feel that they're in trouble and when they're burned out that are confidential and non-stigmatizing. Uh, peer support when uh, for clinicians when there's been a bad outcome or an error. I mean, all of these are things that institutions uh, are doing to varying degrees to try to humanize the environment and also to really take the problem seriously. Uh, I know of one uh, healthcare institution in which the CEO's salary is tied to uh, physician engagement and well-being. And so, you know, CEOs frequently get incentives for, you know, seeing more patients or doing more uh, doing more cardiac procedures or whatever. 
and this is this is in the mix and it may be a small degree but it's it's still it, it's an important statement that we hear you and we see you and this is this is a real problem that we're trying to address and trying not to get in the way of physicians taking care of themselves so in my view the the institutional piece is really important but the institutional piece is not going to happen unless physicians as a collective have a voice I see now that, you know, in the U.S. at least, uh, medical centers are required to have some program that addresses burnout and wellness. And some some systems have a chief wellness officer that has a very nice, well-appointed office and no budget. And there are other places that um, have um, don't really have quite the same degree of glitz, but you have a sense that people are listening. And I think the latter is really more important, um, that listening... I, I think for physicians also, this, there's a responsibility for constructive engagement when the administration does create an opening. And it doesn't happen everywhere. It doesn't happen enough. But, but those opportunities do exist. Uh, and I think in order to change one's relationship to one's work, one has to know oneself in some depth. And to know oneself you have to enter into the difficulty rather than pushing it away or rather than externalizing every aspect of it. I mean, yes, we work in a toxic environment, but people still have responsibility for the attitudes that they bring to it. Uh, I think about the work of Viktor Frankl, who, as, as many people know, is a psychiatrist who is interned in a concentration camp, actually more than one concentration camp during the Second World War. And, and he studied how people were able to maintain a sense of purpose and meaning, even in, in probably the most toxic environment imaginable. And part of what, what he found was that people could discover that despite the, the toxicity of the environment, there was one thing that they did have control over, which was the way that they perceived it and the way that they perceived themselves as having some intrinsic self-worth, even if others didn't recognize it. I know there's a tall order, but it's a real lesson that even in, in difficulty, we can find these little spaces in our day in which we can examine what we're doing whether we're aligned with the goals and, and objectives that we have for ourselves uh, that, that represent our deepest aspirations as clinicians and perhaps take an opportunity to just get a little bit closer to those aspirations. It's not saying that the problems are going away, but it's recognizing the little things that we can do on a moment-to-moment -moment basis uh, during our everyday work. Well, one of our listeners actually sent in just the very simple question, um, and the question is, how do you teach resilience? And this made me think of a conversation that I was having with a colleague of mine just yesterday, and that colleague expressed her conviction that people can't change whether they are fundamentally resilient. She believes and holds the view that when people arrive uh, for medical training, they are sort of protoplasm and they are basically the way they are. So can you give our listeners the information they need when they're confronted with that viewpoint to intelligently challenge that belief, which we know is not really true? 
Well, what you're saying really flies in the face of evidence, but I understand the historical context of that. It used to be thought that by age seven, your personality was completely fixed. And then the age became 20, and then it became 30. And now we're seeing that, that there are really fundamental aspects of our personality that are subject to some modification throughout the lifespan, and sometimes for better, sometimes for worse. We have programs in mindful practice for clinicians, uh, for physicians mostly. And about 12 years ago, we did a study of one of the programs we did and found that after uh, a year's workshop uh, where people met weekly for eight weeks and then monthly for the rest of the year, in which they learned to look inside themselves, to also engage in deep discussions with colleagues about key areas of their clinical lives that were distressing, that not only did their sense of well-being and resilience improve, but they also reported that their relationships with their patients improved. And we did personality tests every three months of this cohort and found that their uh, ability to tolerate extreme emotion improved. And that's one aspect of resilience that they became more attentive, uh, they became more emotionally aware. So this is, this is mutable. This is something that is learnable. And to some extent, we have to learn that as we mature anyway, but there are ways in which we can uh, deepen that learning process, and mindfulness training is one of them. There are many other ways. And Ron, could you say just a few words about what some of the other practices out there are in medical education that are currently being used to try to build resilience? The most important, in my view, is just creating opportunities for community. And that was echoed by our cohort that we studied also, that more than any particular skill or technique or um, that they learned, it was the sense of community that there are others who are experiencing things similar to what they are. And the second are, are concrete skills that you can bring into the workday. So we teach doctors to do meditation, but not with the idea that they're going to become uh, Zen monks or going to go off on a retreat somewhere, although that might be nice and helpful for some people. The thought is, is that if you can find ways in which you can stop, even momentarily, take stock of, of your internal life, you know, what's going on? You just saw a patient, you had to give them bad news, you're feeling upset, okay. And then the ability to, to just hold that awareness without pushing it away, without clinging to it, somehow makes a difference in their, their ability to adapt to the stresses of everyday life. So one exercise that we teach doctors to do is, be, you know, if you go from one room to the next in seeing patients, either in the hospital or in an outpatient setting, to stop for a second before you enter the room, maybe when you touch the door, door handle, take a breath, observe your own thoughts and feelings. And what I like to do is mentally set aside what had happened with the previous encounter that I had with a patient or a colleague so that I can then enter the room with a sense of freshness. So, you know, just stop for a moment, taking a breath, observing, and then, um, then moving forward. And these are things that are learnable. It sounds ridiculously simple, 
But if you do it every day, and let's say you've got 20 patients in a day and 100 patients in a week, and you make a practice of doing this, something begins to happen. You begin to have a greater degree to set aside or to to put into perspective the distress that you're feeling, recognizing that any emotion has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Any thought has a beginning, a middle, and an end. That these are all things that don't have a permanence about them. And that sense of embracing the impermanence of our own ex- our own experience, in my view, is fundamental to building resilience. If you view something as unchangeable, obviously it's very hard to change. If you view something as transient, you begin realizing that often it doesn't take a huge amount of effort. Maybe just simply turning, uh, turning towards that feeling rather than turning away from it. Uh, maybe it, it involves strategies that you already know. But it's the awareness that really is the first first ingredient that's important. So those are things you can do by yourself. They're, they're exercises you can practice at home and bring into the workplace that help you maintain a sense of who you are, what you're observing, what you're interpreting in that, and, and how to maintain a sense of personal perspective. Another thing that is really helpful is, is uh, using narratives. As humans, we're natural storytellers. That's how history, uh, uh, you know, before the written word, that's how history really happened was in, it was through stories. And in many cultures, stories are really a very active part of the transmission of culture. And, and by asking doctors to write down a brief narrative about a time when a patient died or a time when they made a mistake or a time when they got into a conflict or a time when they felt attracted to a patient or repulsed by a patient or a time when they felt a sense of connection or a sense of disconnection. I mean, there are any number of themes that you can, that you can write about that bring you closer to that experience because just by writing a story helps you relive and enact that. One step further is stories really are exist to be told, to be listened to. And, and there are different ways of listening. So there's, there's listening in a way to, in which you're composing your response. And I would call that kind of shallow listening. You know, you, someone says a few words and then you're thinking, well, I had an experience just like that, or I have an opinion about that, or a piece of advice, or an interpretation, or it's a good thing or a bad thing. So one thing that I try to teach is helping people recognize the difference between what you hear and what you interpret and what you hear, because it's the interpretation that creates the distress. And then by creating that distinction, then you can listen more deeply to the person who's telling you a story. So you'll be more curious, you'll be more, you'll, you'll understand their experience, not your interpretation of their experience. And all of us crave to be understood in that way. Our patients crave to be understood. Our colleagues do. We do. And so at times when one can have structured dialogues in which there's deep listening, uh, where deep listening is really the, uh, the task at hand, uh, can be very powerful not only in creating connections between clinicians, but also in improving self-understanding and, under, and a sense of of collegiality and camaraderie. So those are two things. And the third thing you'd mentioned already, appreciative in, inquiry, you can, there's a technique called appreciative interviewing in which 
you ask someone about a difficult situation and you try to elicit from that person positive things that they did or another person did that made the situation perhaps a little bit better. So those are three fundamentals that uh, I use a lot in my teaching and in the workshops that our group does are really the pillars of, of resilience training. You know, Ron, I find myself thinking about something that I learned from you and Mick Krasner. And it was the concept that, you know, when one begins to develop some kind of meditation practice, whatever that looks like for an individual, as I recall, the difference between individuals who meditate and those who don't in terms of their catecholamine response to a stressful stimuli I think I recall that there's no particular difference in their initial response, but the difference is in how long it takes the meditator to get the get back to a baseline state. Yeah, absolutely. I started doing meditation long before I went into medical school. So for me, it, it's it's part of my life. It's like brushing my teeth. I, I I do sitting meditation every morning. Now, for some people, that that can be quite useful, but I think there there are lessons that that we can learn about self-regulation in general. So for many, and I think meditation in a way is the simplest thing to teach. Uh, you sit there, you observe your thoughts and feelings, you observe your breath, you try not to judge your experience, and you, you uh, have a sense that whatever it is, no matter how disturbing the thought you have, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. The thought, you can't hold a thought in your mind permanently forever. Uh, it's just humanly impossible. You get distracted. Something else happens. And you begin to cultivate that skill of recognizing the trajectory of distress in yourself and gain a certain sense of peace or solace knowing that those states of distress are intrinsically transient. And so the biological observations that Yes, your heart rate goes up, you get scared, you get frightened, you get angry, whatever the emotion is, but you're also able to keep it from being self-perpetuating. And that's a really important skill. So it's not that people who do meditation don't feel things or somehow are bland or unresponsive or zombie-like. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. I think you're really honing your capacity for sensitivity to your own internal world so you recognize it for what it is and that the interpretations you place on negative events are constructions of your own mind, and therefore, to some extent, subject to your own control. Ron, we had a couple of questions from individuals about um, resilience and mindfulness in medical education, and I think we've touched on the content of uh, some of the questions from those listeners. But one thing I'm wondering as we talk is, what are the personal qualities or characteristics or traits that perhaps put a person at risk for less capacity to develop resilience? How can an individual, an institution, or a medical education program begin to identify some of those traits in individuals and perhaps even screen folks who are at risk for reduced capacity for resilience? Yeah, it's a really good question. And um you know, if you think about the whole process of getting into medical school, it has to do with acquired factual knowledge. Uh, a lot of it has to do with your ability to pass difficult science courses or perform well on standardized tests. 
If you ask any experienced clinician what are the major challenges of their training and also their practice of medicine, they'll, they'll point to emotional challenges. They'll point to feelings of self-doubt, uh, feelings of being criticized, handling anger, ha handling disappointment, despair, distress. Uh, and there's very little in the admissions process to medical school that allows us to screen for those those qualities. Uh, I will say at our medical school in Rochester, the average entering age of students is around 25 or 26. So um, we tend to like to have students who've had a bit of life experience and especially leadership experience because we know that that leadership is doesn't have much to do with how much you know. It, it has to do with the ability of knowing yourself and, and how, do, how you can regulate your own emotions during stressful uh, circumstances. So in, in terms of medical school admissions, to perhaps put more emphasis on leadership qualities, on the capacity to deal with stressful circumstances, et cetera. I mean, some of the best medical students I've worked with have been have spent time uh, in the Peace Corps, where they've you know gone to a a third world country for two two years, had to learn the language, cultures, and survive in a very foreign environment. So, uh, not that everyone should have to do that, but we should really look more for those qualities uh, than we have been. And in the beginning of medical school we should really develop those qualities to the degree that we can. My son works for Google, and he was describing to me the the orientation that they had during, he's been working just for a few years, and, and so they take all of the new engineers that they've hired, basically on a retreat for a week or so, and they learn how to work in teams, they learn how to give each other feedback, they learn how to deal with disappointment, criticism, conflict, et cetera. Yes, they learn how to log on to the computer and they learn about privacy and security and all that stuff. But the important parts are really this uh, uh, affective education. It's, a, it's, it's learning to be more emotionally intelligent. Um, and you'd think that Google engineers might you know, have a greater chance of being on the spectrum. Um, and I don't know if that's true or not, but they certainly do the best that they can to um, bring out the human potential uh, in terms of recognizing and dealing with emotion. So we can do a lot better in the first week of medical school. I was rather heartened that my daughter, who is a first-year medical student, uh, the first week of her classes spent an entire afternoon devoted to mindfulness and how to develop uh, some capacity for self-awareness. I thought that was fabulous. And, and you know, things have gotten better. Three-quarters of medical schools at least have some uh, some elective time devoted to mindfulness, and an increasing number have it woven into their curriculum. So you know, things are better than when I was a medical student in the, in the 1980s. Uh, so there's been progress. But beyond that, after you're in, on the wards and in practice, there are very, very few opportunities. And I think as a profession, we really should think about how to develop those. Ron, one of our final questions, one of our listeners has written in and asked this, um, are there any arguments against the incorporation of mindfulness into medicine? Well, mindfulness is the ability to observe attentively, to be present, to be non-judgmental, to see things as they are, as a, or distinguish be between things as they are and the constructions that we create around them. 
So if you think about mindfulness in that sense, it is essential for survival. If you think about mindfulness as a technique like meditation or something, yes, there are some people who learn a lot from learning meditation and other people for whom it doesn't seem to gel very well and other people who actually don't like it. So if you're talking about a specific technique, you're never going to find one technique or one approach that works for everybody. But you're, if you're thinking about a fundamental principle of living in the world, I find it really hard to argue against being attentive and present and curious and, um, you know, all of those qualities of someone who, who embodies mindfulness. Well, I think you've hit on a critical point there, which is that just because one says they are a mindfulness practitioner, a mindfulness teacher, or that they are teaching a curriculum in mindfulness. I mean, there's really no standardization of that at this point. Certainly within medical education, you know, some of the experiences I've heard from people, and I'm sure this has happened to you too, people say, well, someone came in and they had this background and they, you know, tried to teach us to sit mindfully uh, you know, versus another group may have a completely different approach in terms of how this work is discussed with them and and presented. And sometimes I wonder if that's part of the the challenge that institutionally, you know, there may be a drive as as accreditation processes begin to focus more on wellness and initiatives that promote wellness in, you know, okay, getting a checkbox, we have a meditation program, but you know, sometimes I wonder if part of the issue can be, you know, is that program really looking at mindfulness and meditation from a, you know, a particular perspective? Is it sort of meeting people where they are? I'm not exactly sure what this listener is getting at, but I, I do wonder if that's part of it. Yeah, no, I, I think you're really echoing a concern that I have, which is uh, mindfulness has become very much in vogue. And, um, and the word has kind of enter the popular culture, I think people by and large have a sense of what those qualities are. Uh, but I have two concerns. One is that uh, that people feel that there's only one way to be mindful, and I think that is a mistake. Uh, requiring everyone to meditate is not really going to work, and I don't think it really sends the right message. So I think offering people a, a a menu of ways to become more mindful and a, a, a culture in which uh, choosing to do any of those activities is has positive valence, is valued. People see it as something that's that adds to the healthcare institution, adds to the medical enterprise. So I think that's important. I also think the people who are teaching mindfulness in professional settings need to either be members of that profession or have worked very closely with members of that profession. So it's not that it, you know, not that someone who's offering um, a workshop for surgeons necessarily has to be a surgeon, but has to have worked closely enough with surgeons to be able to understand the language, culture, norms, and also what opportunities there are to be just a little bit more mindful in your everyday work. And medicine, the culture of medicine is, is somewhat closed and it's unique and it has its own language and, and cultural norms. And the biggest mistakes I've seen are people coming from the outside who are very well-meaning, 
who really just don't understand the culture that they're entering into. So, Ron, we're almost out of time. Any parting words that you have for our listeners? Um, I guess the only other thing I, I would say in closing is that attempts to make help medicine be more mindful need to come from an appreciation of the reality that we all live. It, it's and uh, that it's an imperfect art. That it's something that's that we never completely get right. So I think that's that's really important. That trying to impose some should or another uh, another task that's not intimately interwoven with our daily work, I don't think is really going to take. I think what really needs to happen is a fundamental shift in the way business as usual actually happens. You know, how do you greet a patient? How do you conduct rounds when something goes wrong? In the moment, how do you respond in a way that's helpful and not blaming? Uh, so that's really the work that we have to do. And it's not becoming good at meditation or it's not becoming good at yoga or, you know, uh, it's, it's really addressing what is at the fundamental core of the work that we do every day. So, Ron, thank you so much for being with us today. What an absolute pleasure it's been to talk with you. Thank you again for uh, inviting me, and it's been a pleasure talking. I've been speaking with Dr. Ron Epstein, family physician, palliative care physician, author, and professor of medicine at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in Rochester, New York. His book, Attending, Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity, is published by Scribner. Send your anonymous questions to MedLife with Dr. Horton, and they may be featured in future episodes. You can find a link to the Google Forms page in this episode's description. If you'd like to hear more podcasts in the series, MedLife with Dr. Horton, you can find them as part of CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts and leave us a rating. This program was made possible in part by the Alan Kloss Program in Health Humanities at the Max Rady College of Medicine, the University of Manitoba. I'm Dr. Jillian Horton. Thank you for listening. Thank you.